You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Stephen Karam. Hello, is this Stephen Karam? It's Stephen Karam, yes. I'm how how are you? I, I mispronounced your name, forgive me. Um, That's okay. It's actually it's, it's mispronounced all the time, so... Well, Im- Im- imagine was my name. <laughs> how are you, Paul? I, I am very well. I'm very pleased to speak to you. What am I interrupting at this moment? Uh, at this moment, you are interrupting... Um, I'm working on uh, an adaptation of The Cherry Orchard, which will start rehearsals in August for Roundabout Theatre Company. So I'm working from a literal translation from the Russian, and I'm in that stage where I'm I'm sort of going through the text with a, 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 you know, just word by word trying to unpack every possible meaning. to help me consider the the piece as a whole and, and hopefully make the right decisions. What? Why the decision of working from a literal translation? There, there must be a reason that that you've decided to to approach the text in that way, the Chekhov text. Right. Well, for me, it's it's a pretty practical reason. I don't speak Russian, so. You know, I'm very familiar with the play from many different translations, um, mostly through uh, British adaptations or adaptations of the Cherry Orchard uh, by a British writers. So um, I thought the best way to approach the text would be to start from from scratch with, you know, and, uh, when you're working with a literal translation, it's virtually unintelligible, I mean, when you when you actually try to sort of read it cleanly. But, you know, I'm very lucky that I had a translator who uh, sort of uh, is very good at, at understanding the way I am very interested in as much knowledge as she could throw my way. So it's it's the literal translation allows for copious footnotes, because you can't really do a literal translation and not have many, many footnotes, because uh, a literal translation isn't about... Uh, grammar, or even uh, it's not considering the piece as a whole, or the spirit of the play, um, or the emotional truths and nuances. It's it's literally its concern is just um, word by word giving you um, well a literal translation. It's it's like going. I mean, it, it makes me think of two things. It's like going back to the way in which we learned to speak at a very, very young age when we went from the stage of infancy to to words and didn't quite yet make most of the meaning of the words. You know, the, 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 the word infant is so interesting because it literally means someone without the ability to speak. 
Yeah. Um, so you, we that that made me think of, of what you were saying about the liter literal translation. It also made me think of the incomprehensibility we have often when we put something into Google Translate. Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, in some ways, and you speak. How many languages do you speak? It depends how much I drink. <laughs> Let's say you've had two shots of whiskey. How many? How many languages? I, I rarely only have two shots of whiskey, Stephen. But uh, <laughs> sorry, but I, I would say if I if I don't exaggerate my abilities, I speak four languages: English, French, German, and Spanish. I can manage and master Italian. I can do more or less okay in Dutch uh, and or Flemish. Uh, I know, for instance, how you say "I love you" in Flemish, which I'm I'm sure you'll want to know. When you want to say to someone in Flemish or, or Dutch "I love you," you say "Ik houd van jou." Anyway, what were you going to say? I could have used that when I was when I was traveling in Belgium. All I all I picked up was verboten, so it's I feel like I, I I could have used. I should have called you and actually. <laughs> ne next time, next time before you go to Belgium, uh, we'll we'll have a brush up For course sure, because you have you have Dutch, French, German. French. I mean, you would have, it's, it seems like uh, uh, you would excel in that part of the world. As I often say, nothing that ten years of therapy can't help. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I'd be more curious to sort of, uh, to, I mean, your journey as a translator or as an adapter, I should say, yeah. um, would be very different than mine. And so, but yeah, I mean, you're talking about infancy and, and sort of piecing together things. It's in some ways it's, it's, you know, it, you, you realize what, uh, you're, you're sort of, if you accept that you're going to fail from the onset, if your goal is to create something as magical as as uh, the play in Russian, you are uh, you just won't succeed because it can't be done. So you're already it's kind of freeing to know you're starting from something that um, it's a problem of purely of form, and it's not about you. You'll never be able to uh, recreate the play. Uh, the way it can be heard by Russian audiences um, with Chekhov's magical rhythms and uh, the precision of, of exactly, precisely what he was saying. And so I, I find that kind of freeing, actually, because once you accept that, you know, uh, it's essentially like uh, trying to do a, I don't know, a New York Times crossword puzzle, but but trying to make the answers, the English answers fit using the Russian words, you know, it just... It won't fit if you do it literally, or even if you do it semi-literally. Like if you have a, a, some people work from literal translations that where the literal uh, the translator will actually do a pass um, where they kind of skirt over uh, rather than making the grammar awkward and you know the Google Translate version where things are choppy and don't quite make sense. Uh, they maybe uh, help you out with a colloquialism and. Um, but I like to work from just lots and lots of footnotes so that you get, um, you really get the nitty gritty about, I mean, in the cherry orchard, the final word that fears, uh, uh, utters in the play is Nedotiopa, which is at the time <laughs> was a word that Chekhov had sort of invented. So it actually was kind of a, a word that depending on the translation you read, people have used everything from half-baked bungler to silly billy to... And this is the final word of the play, so it's, it's kind of funny when you realize that um, 
you almost need to understand the stories behind um, the deeper meaning behind uh, uh, not just the words, but also in the context of when Chekhov was using the words, you know, what, what those implications are. So, and, and what does that uh, word mean? What's that? What does that last word mean? Well, there's no... Re I mean, now it's entered... What's funny is it's entered the... Uh, It's entered the Russian language, but as a result of the cherry orchard. So it kind of approximately means everything from uh, a kind of uh, good for nothing, uh, uh, you know, but the hyphenated version of that, um, or like I said, really well-known writers have used. God, I'm, Silly Billy was one that I just encountered. Half baked bunglet. A lot of them are very, very. <laughs> British, uh, uh, you could tell. You can tell when the writers are British when you get something like uh, a silly Billy or or half baked bottler. Do, do you know what you will use yet? I'm inclined to, and this will I, absolutely probably change a thousand times. But I'm I'm very attracted to the fact that he was using a word that wasn't really in the lexicon, and that it it was you know the the sound of it was what he was most attracted to. And although in Russian, it definitely has connotations of something people would have understood as, as kind of a, a, a good-for-nothing, um, it doesn't literally translate to that. So I, I, I'm, I sort of have it firmly in place as, you know, the old man is still muttering, because I'm, I'm attracted to how... Uh, nothing else seems to work. So you might use the Russian. I just might use the Russian. I, 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 I love the idea. I, I love the idea, and you know, when you were saying that you can't quite approximate how a Russian audience would hear it, but in a, in a, in a sense, a Russian audience wouldn't hear it today, probably the way Chekhov wrote it a hundred and some years ago. Exactly. In other words, it would be like you and I hearing something like "ninny nani" or something. When somebody says something that you, you kind of get what they're calling somebody. You're, you're saying that they're ridiculous or they're useless or they're just being, you know, it has a kind of a, via the sound of it, you're kind of picking up on what it means. But, you know, there's another example. I'm trying to think of what I just was dealing with. Oh, there's just, there's a very simple section where somebody says goodbye in a way that is very playful. And uh, I was talking to the uh, literal translator, Allison, I was trying to understand it more. I said, I don't understand why this, you know, it's often translated in so many different ways that it made no sense to me where people were coming up with these, you know, and it's because in the Russian, it's, a, it's essentially the word goodbye with a vowel, let's say, added to the end of it. But in Russian, it sounds very um, silly. It sounds weird and funny. And so it's kind of, it was, it, it makes people laugh in the play. You know, he says goodbye in this way. But, you know, when she explained it to me, she said, really, the only way to kind of give you a sense of what it is, it's, it would be like someone saying goodbye -o. <laughs> but But, of course, it doesn't have the same connotation because it doesn't sound silly in the right way. Um, you know, that wouldn't make anyone laugh, but the way it sounds in Russian is particularly comic and just a little silly. And so there's, there's a lot of fascinating and fun, very minute problems like that 
that I also love. But you know, when 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 you when you were talking about something that may or may not make us laugh, something that may or may not be comic, it reminds me of a moment when I had the pleasure of welcoming uh, Richard Pivia and Larissa Larissa Volohonsky, the the tr- the translators, the newer translators of. I, think I just read their brother's Karamazov. You would. I, I imagine you would absolutely, and uh, you know uh, they. So, a story behind their translation of Dostoevsky is a story of their love affair, and the the way, as I understand it or recall it, Stephen, that um, they they really got together both as translators and as a couple is that they were reading side by side I think Crime and Punishment but it could have been the Brothers Karamazov, I'm not sure and Larissa was laughing and Richard was not (laughs) and they discovered that in the English translation, the old English translation, which at that point probably would have been Constance Garnett, but I'm not sure, it wasn't funny. But Dostoevsky is very funny. And he's funny in a way that, you know, makes me think of some of the things in your place that are funny and truly painful. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's, I mean, that's probably why their translations have been so successful, um, because they're, I mean, the, the Brothers Karamazov, the, the translation that they did that I read, is, it's hilarious. Um, and comedy, I feel like you have to, uh, it requires intuition, um, which means you have to get further and further from to get at the heart of the thing, you actually have to abandon the, the literal thing, the thing that we were discussing. Yes. Uh, a kind of slavishness to a literal translation. Because uh, what's funny in, in you know, one language is just going to require, it could just require some, a new, um, to get at the same truth, you, you actually might, you need to free yourself up. That's right. Um, you know, I, I, I was reading a review a, a, a while back ago. Maybe it was a, a portrait of you where the writer, I think, in the New York Times said that you you wrote, I think he mentioned it as painful comedies. and right. And I thought that was... A, a, quite an extraordinary way to to describe what I feel when when both reading you and when seeing your most recent play, which I I must say for for anybody listening in now, eavesdropping now, must go and and see the humans. It it just it it struck me as as deeply deeply that, um, and I wonder how how you respond to to those two words put together to in some way describe what you're doing. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. Glad you came. Oh, um, God, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. I, uh, it's, it's a tough question. I guess maybe 
maybe the most honest answer is that I don't think about it so much. I, I'm more... I like hearing these things because it gives me a sense as to how how other people experience uh, the stories that I tell and the way that I tell them. But I guess I'm just interested in trying to get at the truth, whatever my own truths are or the, the things that I'm trying to, the questions I'm trying to uh, answer or explore. Um, and so that's really my main. Yeah, thing. no, I, I understand. So I guess what it, I guess what it what it reveals maybe is just that that since people do seem to consistently find that uh, something that to to know. I mean, maybe that is it's reflective of my view of life or how I see people and how I see the human condition. I think I think all there is. So much pain, but there's also so much joy and right. wonder and magic that comes with being alive and the human condition. That it all gets put into the same stew. So, I guess maybe it's, it points to the fact that my own worldview is I, I'm I'm probably more perplexed when I see a play that that doesn't swing where the pendulum doesn't sort of uh, go from one to the other. You know, it, 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 Stephen, you you know this about me. I I, I suffer terribly from quotomania, and the, what you what this you about you though. This is like, <laughs> it, it, it's just, what I love. It's okay. just it, it's you know I, I it's a disease from which I wish no cure. But for those living around me or near me or hearing me, uh, they often think, "Oh my God, here he goes again." And here I do go again in reaction to what you just said. Um, about the pendulum swinging between between joy and and um, perhaps despair, though you didn't quite put it in those words. Um, a, a line I've always loved is a line by Camus where he said, we have to love life before loving its meaning, for when the love of life has left us, no meaning can any longer console us. Huh. That's so, great. Isn't it? And somehow right. we, we we need that. We need that as 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 um, as a springboard from which to feel everything that is is difficult and everything that is joyous. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, I really do hope that my work makes people feel less alone and. Uh, well, that's so fascinating. But he's in despair. It takes them out of it. In other words, I like going into the basement uh, and really, you know, as far down as I can go, not because I want to drag people down into the the murkiness of despair and all that's depressing about life, but because I actually feel like that's how you can release the kind of grit that... that anxiety and pain can sort of have on your life. It's by actually being unafraid of examining what's really hard about being alive and what can be really challenging and scary. It makes life less scary. It makes makes me feel less alone and more connected to um, others, the world at large, yeah. and to others. Yeah. Well, you know, the basement. Um, it, 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 when you said you'd like to go into the basement. Um, 
it makes me think so much of, of another phone call I had with the great English psychoanalyst Adam Phillips. Um, and analysis, if you think of it, is a, a way of going into the basement and looking at the old furniture with a flashlight uh, or going into the attic and, and looking what, what is around there. What needs to be, where does the light need to um, rest? What does it need to illuminate? What are, what are the discarded pieces that one needs to take into account? And I think that, that your, your plays do that really quite magnificently um, by, by virtue also of their concision, um, which is, I think... Um, a, a trait in you that I, I I truly admire the the way in which in very very few words you're able to say a lot and I'm wondering it, we've we've spoken about Chekhov a little bit and this isn't the first time that Chekhov comes up in your life um, I think you you did an adaptation of the Seagull yeah I did I did for uh, for film that is with Annette Benning. Uh, Elizabeth Moss and Saoirse Ronan, and that's that's coming out. Uh, I can't quite say officially, but but look soon, 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 soon. Um, well, before before I leave you, before I leave you for for something else than than Chekhov, there's a line uh, again in 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 terms of a, a quotation. But here's one that I will I will read out to you, so not to mess mess up in any way. It's one that... Do you know, do you know which translation? Do you know who, who did the adaptation? No, I don't. I don't. So, um, but but um, it sounds pretty good in English this way, and, and okay. we've, we've spoken about it once before, you will remember, and we, we might be able even to invoke that, that very precious moment. But it, it, it is a line that makes me think of your work very much, um, particularly when I mentioned painful comedies to you and you you resisted the, um, the the categorization which i think is you you said to be as honest as i possibly can and honest you were and here is chekhov on honesty in some way he says there should be more sincerity and heart in human relations more silence and simplicity in our interactions be rude when you're angry, laugh when something is funny, and answer when you're asked. Hmm. Yeah, well, you can draw a direct line from that quote to, I mean, to all of his his best plays. I mean, he, Cherry Orchard was his last, and the economy, I mean, he, he manages to uh, really take a very simple look at a group of people in a moment in time, and yet the play has cosmic repercussions and potential in terms of examining humanity as a whole. As a whole, I mean, it's the play is it is kind of magical in the way that it is epic. Same time, you can sit around uh, your kitchen table and read it with a few friends, and it feels like it's just about you know your family and friends. It's, it's very much about a specific group of people, and yet 
it seems to um, uh, glean the cosmic at the same time. And I feel like that's something probably all writers try to do. And well, I think I'm especially attracted to the way Chekhov does it because he seems to do it so uh, economically or so... Like a lot of the best writers, he seems to make it... Um, it seems so. It seems so simple, and yet it it is almost like a sleight of hand. Where no matter how many times you read it, you continue to go deeper and deeper, and there are more layers to pull back. And I mean, that's the real reason I think there can never be enough uh, adaptations of his work or of any great writer's work. Because I mean, selfishly, for the writers doing the adaptations, it is not only a masterclass, but you rarely you realize how, um, and you might get a chance to do this, Paul, because you you actually do read a lot and you're constantly coming in contact with authors. But for me, I haven't had a chance to spend this kind of time with one particular text for since I was in high school and college and acting in plays. You know, actors get to do a run of a play, and by the time it's over, they pretty much you know if you're in a production of Twelfth Night. Or I remember doing Cymbeline in the summer. You you know every phrase, every line, every nuance, every turn in the story. You have it mesmerized, and actors get that when they uh, when they do a play that goes on for you know three or four months. But I didn't realize how much I missed that kind of close reading until I did the Seagull film, and I. It was amazing to me how much you have to learn when a work is that good, um, or when a writer is that, you know, is, is when you're reading Chekhov or uh, or any great writer. It's there's so it, it just the text continues to surprise and continues to reveal secrets. And um, I mean, have you had that experience? And is there a text that you've ever had to or an event you've had to prepare for where you found yourself reading something? I don't know more than once. Oh, absolutely, and and I'm I'm the retention I'm, of quotes is amazing, which you, makes me think that you just you have a good mind for. for well, work. I I don't know. Um, you you you're making me feel, um, both this, both loss, uh, in the sense that I'm 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 at a loss to to recall a time when I was quite as immersed as as you. Uh, as you describe, which which makes me me think precisely of the way in which you manage what it seems to me to be your life, namely a life where you protect yourself. Um, it would seem from distraction, because well, I try. Yeah, because I know, because the, it doesn't work. But I no, do. I know. But the gift you're giving yourself by trying is to recall a time uh, which you were describing earlier on in your younger years where immersion was possible where real where you could drown yourself in in uh, a work of art Let, let's just call it uh, broadly a work of art because it could be I, I think that what what might define a work of art is is a, is inexhaustibility um, totally, totally, and and I'm talking, you know, even lesser. We, we, you know, I mentioned Shakespeare and Chekhov, but I mean, I was in college. I was in a production of Little Shop of Horrors, and I don't know. Did you ever act when you were a kid? Or 
I, I, I probably should answer by saying I never stop, but I never did. <laughs> well, you can imagine, I mean, I still remember, I still get this question a lot from people who are, uh, see any play that I write. They are most impressed. You know, there's a kind of person who's really impressed that actors have the facility. And they want to know how they memorized all the words. <laughs> because, you know, how often as adults are we asked to... Um, literally go through a, a two or three hour play and memorize text so so well that you can uh, uh, do it instantly and with ease. And uh, especially if you think about, um, uh, you know, if you have a large role and you're you're, you're playing uh, King Lear or something. I mean, it's it, it's a muscle that most of us don't. I mean, why would we exercise it? Um, so I guess I'm, I'm specifically having recall to, uh, you know, how many plays I did in high school and college and how it's just, uh, you realize as adults, I mean, other than as like a playful challenge, like if I said to you, you know, Paul, like you've probably seen Romeo and Juliet a hundred times, but you should go through and just pretend you're playing Mercutio and, and just memorize. <laughs> you would see how hard, I mean, you really have to immerse yourself even when you become familiar with it, to get to the point where you can actually move through the play, uh, you actually have, it requires a degree of, you know, it's why actors go into lockdown for three weeks and they are rehearsing every day and probably taking the text home with them and, you know, falling asleep with it on their chest. And, yeah, I guess there is a degree to which even that kind of immersion didn't, I need that, um, when I'm starting from scratch with a story, it's very hard for me to get an original story uh, where you're making up both the content, uh, the form, you're making decisions about the visual landscape of the world, what kind of, is the, are you conjuring some sort of uh, poetic visual landscape and how does, the, how does the visual images, are they going to mesh with the story you're telling? I mean, it goes on and on, but, but that kind of obsession is helpful for me. You know, even things that you would never pick up watching the humans. You know, I was obsessed with Gordon Matta Clark, and so for me it was very important that that whatever the set became, that it was sort of a creamy white void that was sort of lost in darkness and swimming in black surrounding the proscenium with no hints of the outside world, so that you could gradually void a very specific, real uh, architecturally real apartment um, as the lights went out. And essentially, almost like going back to the beginning of time, you sort of create from the the white boy to black boy. So, so these things that people will never think of when they're seeing the play, I, I find it really important in terms of maybe how you, what you can get away with in terms of um, conjuring a mood. And that allows me to use Less words. What you can get. What you can get. It seems like it would be a later, like an afterthought. Like, well, you'll just write the play, and then you'll think about how it should look. Neither so married because how a play sounds is is very much connected to um, how it looks and the information that an audience can really absorb, um, even if it's all unconscious, um, by staring at something. You know, when you say what you can get away with, um, it immediately made me think of what you can include. 
so that um, an, an artist like Mata Clark that you bring in, though nobody really knows it, you you bring in because we're we're a we're a, a mixture of passions. We don't only bring our theater experience or our literary experience. We bring everything we know. We bring our bodies. We bring our souls. We bring everything to it. And so it, it, it doesn't surprise me, but it makes me just realize to what extent all the influences matter in one form or another. And some of them, of course, matter in, in your case for in, f perhaps more. I mean, Chekhov would be, would be an example. And I, I think of someone else that I, I really would love to bring you together with, Stephen. I think I mentioned it to you once, is I'd love to see you and David Mamet on the same stage. Let's do it, no? I mean, well, David's been, he's an incredible writer, yeah. I mean, he's astonishing. I feel like, I feel like David changed the game. I mean, he's, he literally, he, he changed the face of American playwriting. Um, and have you had him as a guest? No, I never have. I never have. And, and, um, I just, I just feel that the, the two of you, um, even if there would be silences, they would be they would be pregnant with meaning, and they would even if if um, you know, however much or little you know each other, there would be such a a connection on a deep level of what it means to write a play that it, it just strikes me as something I must do before I die. Another thing I must do before I die that that you've made me feel. A longing for when I was talking about immersion and you spoke about being mesmerized, though I thought you were going to say memorize, but mes mesmerized by a text is I must, I was going to say reread, but I, I fear that I may not have read it but spoken about it, much like the book by Pierre Bayard, which is called How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. I know I've done this before. I am not sure I've read Brothers Karamazov. And so now, in front of everybody who may listen to this, I, I am going to go and get that translation I was speaking about earlier and read it this summer. Well, it's, I mean, it's an, obviously, I don't need, you don't need me to tell you it's an incredible book, but I, I'm glad we actually, you brought up the, the translators because it is remarkably funny, and I had tried to read it before, um, after college, and I found it very dull and very tedious, and it's amazing how, and I suppose a little frightening when you realize what a gap there is between uh, these works and then their, uh, uh, what gets lost in translation, because this new translation, and the same with Proust, it's, uh, what's her name, uh, Lydia Davis? Lydia Davis, yes. Her, um, both books I had tried to read before, and suddenly both I couldn't put down. And that's a credit, obviously, to those authors. But in, you know, in the case, they're both authors who I believe are fluent in the... Um, uh, Lydia, I think, speaks French. But, I, I, absolutely. So it was incredible to see that, that you almost do need, and they're both, you know, um, brilliant writers in their own rights, but... but but to think that something that was not funny suddenly was funny, it just makes you realize how much can get lost in translation. And, and that's probably, 
nothing else, the best the best call for lots of adaptations um, because it isn't a science. It isn't there is there is never going to be a perfect a perfect you know English version of Chekhov. There's well, I think going to be different versions. I think if there was a perfect translation, it it would be the end of language. Um, you know, we we uh, there, there is that famous. Italian way of of speaking of of translator, which is traductore traditore, translator traitor. Um, it, it is always an approximation. Um, it is always it always eludes you because uh, yeah. meaning meaning does. And when you and I speak to each other as we do right now, there are so many levels at which we do understand each other, and so many levels at which we don't. And it's in that space, that in-between space, that that meaning is created in some form or fashion. I wanted to, before before we end this call, um, talk to you a little bit about some of the the, the work you've done with others, and in in particular with someone who has taken my call before, and that is Nico Muley. And uh, speak a little bit about about what you did with Nico and. Maybe there might be something in the future you will do together. Oh, sure. I mean, I I don't feel like we've ever stopped working together. Uh, Nico's doing he's doing the music for the Cherry Orchard. Uh, he did the incidental music for Sons of the Prophet. Oh, he's doing the music for for the Cherry Orchard now. He is. He is. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's fantastic. And we met doing. Um, he uh, was commissioned to write a chamber opera. Uh, and that became uh, Dark Sisters, and uh, yeah, we met. I guess it was maybe 2008, and sort of hit it off instantly. Very much a case of opposites attract. I think I'm, you know, in awe of the way Nico's mind works, and where where I need a lot of. We just talked about this. Where I need tend to need space to contemplate and come back with with. Some answers after I've had uh, time alone. Nico has, <laughs> is very much able to work in the moment uh, with people in the room, and um, it's quite prolific. And so I've been inspired by him, and he's teased, you know, a kind of work out of me that um, I'm not sure. Well, let's just say I've, I've seen myself grow in terms of my own artistic abilities as a result of of just knowing him and, and having him in my life. He's been, you know, a really special force. But, but uh, in terms of that first project, what I love most about that, very similar to what I'm doing now with the Cherry Orchard, is uh, I, quite, I quite liked serving his music. Um, in, in opera, obviously, the music needs to do the heavy lifting. And uh, I loved, as you know, we discussed, I love economy, and uh, I loved that, uh, you know, finding the, uh, just the right amount of words, but not, not too many, and uh, not getting too flowery, and seeing what what Nico with his music could do on his own. And, and that's, that was very inspiring and, and thrilling. And yeah, I hope, I hope 
we continue to work together. Well, you know, I remember, I remember speaking once on stage with Jessie Norman, and she she said something that I can't forget. She said that she said about opera, it's just life just blown up really big. Really, really big. Really, really big. big. Yeah. What's fun is with the interplay between the two of us, what I've learned from him in his, let's say, uh, strongest area, which is opera, you know, I've dragged him back into the theater because the more I sort of appreciated the power of what a composer like, like Nico can do with his music, I mean, the final end, or the end of Sons of the Prophet, I mean, really was inspired a lot by um, what Nico does uh, in these small ensemble uh, arrangements orchestrally. And the end of Sons of the Prophet was really, I just became obsessed with the idea of this this movement action where I actually did give it over the final moments to his music. And without any words, you know, essentially the final, the play ends without any words. And so I, I do feel like I, it's funny if you chart uh, oh, my journey with Nico, you can kind of see me go from Dark Sisters and then dragging his music into my play. <laughs> and then here we are again in the cherry orchard. Um, so t- t- two things, the, the humans is still on, am I right? The humans is still on Broadway, and we... We're supposed to close July 24th, and now we are we are simply taking two weeks off. We have to vacate our current theater, but we are reopening on Broadway August 9th at the Schoenfeld Theater. So extraordinary! Are you are you surprised by this success? Yes, very much so, and not because I <laughs> I'm surprised. I don't think the place has no worth. I I'm just I didn't see. Anytime you make something that feels this, uh, you feel very vulnerable when you make something that, that comes from your heart and your gut. And um, I think the way theater works nowadays is that those works, sometimes the end of the line is quite happily a very successful off-Broadway run because of the, uh, the economic pressures of Broadway, you know, to put a star in the show or to have a something based on a movie title. So so I'm completely floored that the play has made it to Broadway, and I'm equally floored that it continues to run. And there are no stars except that everybody who plays in it is a star. I mean, that was... I didn't know them, but... I, there, there was nobody when I went to see the play in its in its early days that wasn't outstanding, and that that I think uh, for for the critics and for the public to have recognized that does make one hopeful, um, uh, hopeful about about excellent work. How was it? I met your 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 wonderful parents, and I'm I'm wondering how how it was for them to see it. You know, I think they're they're very proud. I think they're similarly. Um, I think they're taken aback by all of it, but they're also they've been overwhelmed by the outpouring of love from. Uh, you know, Scranton, where I grew up, is not very far from New York, no, and I think they've it, been overjoyed, as have I, about the number of people who have come and taken the trip from Scranton, even people who normally wouldn't come to the city. I mean, I'll never forget oh. speaking to you on stage in Scranton. 
And, ev- and it, it was one of the most magnificent moments, not only because of the, the conversation we had, which I, I, I deeply enjoyed, but also all the people who didn't go to, to New York for that occasion, but came to, to the University of Scranton to, to hear the, 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 um, the, re, the return of, of, of the prodigal son coming to their, to, to their city. And one of the most moving moments, even that I'll never forget, is one of your teachers. Was it your, your English teacher or your music teacher? A lady who was in a in a in a wheelchair at that point, and uh, you introduced me to her, and she she had taught you so many things. You remember who I'm talking about? That was that was I'm I'm almost certain that was my uh, speech and debate teacher and coach uh, from high school, Mrs. Langan. Yeah, and she's, re- she's remarkable. It was it, yeah. <laughs> And, and you know all of the Lebanese, all of your Lebanese family that came came out, and and it was just a, a tremendous a tremendous moment to see the support. So I can only imagine how it was for them to hear so much about you uh, in Scranton, coming out of of this big metropolis. Um, finally. Um, how do you manage? And and you know where my question is coming from. But how do you how do you manage to um, concentrate or to? Uh, I need a lot. I I do a few things. I'm still learning how to do this better and better. But I do need. Um, I cannot take on too many projects at once. So I I try to only be working on one or two things at a time which feels risky in that, you know, you will have successes and you'll have failures, but it's very hard for me to get, to put my best foot forward if I am working on too many things. So if I'm doing a chamber opera with Nico, I, at most I want to be, you know, working on one other thing. So that helps. And then um, something that I've just had to accept about the way I work is that I, I do need a lot of time during the day to make progress on original work, especially. So let's say if I'm working on a new play, I can't just work from 9 to 10 and then take a call and then work from... No, and you couldn't. I, 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 I hasten to say that when we were going to speak to each other a few weeks ago, you you said, let's speak later because I'm... I'm basically... you. you I had the the impression you were just telling me, I just need time that though I may not be busy every moment, I need time not to be interrupted. Exactly. And that can be hard because, you know, for people who want your time, um, you realize they just, everybody's different, right? And so there's just, what I understand is that for them, it seems strange because they don't, operate the same way. It would be, let's say, I have a lot of friends who are writers who um, need like 10 breaks during the day. And if their day isn't actually fragmented on several different projects, uh, they can't actually, they don't, they're actually not as productive. They actually like the juggling and they like breaking up the day. And so for me, I mean, the best I can do is just be honest and, and, you know, um, let the people who love me know that 
it's not anything they're doing, but yeah, that, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes the, uh, um, the only way for me to move forward is to really protect my, let's say nine to five. Well, let me say, um, as, as my, as my junior, I've, I've learned a lot, uh, from our two or three interactions where I, I, was at risk of interrupting you and you 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 made you made it clear you know just how precious uninterrupted time is it you know again um in, in the world of quotations there's a wonderful line by the french philosopher simon veil where she says that attention is a form of prayer and um in in so many ways it i i feel you know a calling now after speaking with you that I too must find a way to, to not, not interrupt myself and others. So, so thank you for that. Really, well, my pleasure, and thank you. You know, I need to be dragged out of my concentration now and then. So, well, I'm I'm glad I provided you that service, and and we'll speak again very soon. And I can't wait to 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 come and see the cherry orchard. Tell me, when is that opening? That is opening. We start previews in. September and we open it in October. I will be there. Uh, I look forward to it and I look forward to our next chat. Sending you much love and thank you for taking my call. Same. Love to you and the whole family. Bye bye. All right. Bye, Paul.